when you face the spear of resistance gremlins, it is easy to lose yourself in primal rage. Primal rage that's deep down inside of you. But notice the power of simply approaching the fight with something else that is deep down inside of you. Self-love. Don't get caught up or invested in what other people want you to be. You can have it all by having nothing at all. We don't create abundance. It's already all around us. It's present everywhere. We create limitations. And one of those limitations is self-judgment. Now again, notice the power of simply approaching that fight with self-love. If you are free of self-judgment, and you hold no value for what others believe, nothing can pierce your happiness bubble. When you remove your casing, what value is inside? How healthy is your internal relationship? You always have to remember to love and respect yourself. You are the alpha experience. Love and respect everybody else too, but not until you love yourself first. It's important that your energy is supportive of you so that you may use your grace and your love to shower the rest of the world with creative passion. You are unique. Everything in your life is thriving. You are a ball of white light expanding infinitely. You have to love yourself because you need that that rest. You got to be there. You got to be ready for the world. You are the first spark of the magic red flower. You are the quench to an ocean of thirst. If fairy tales are real, you inked the first line and the last line. Your big ambition proves that action lives in color. And on this universal canvas, your palette paints the beauty. Breathe easy. The spear of resistance cannot pierce your beautiful array of rainbow colors, and sweet-ass armor that is going to be your best friend when you take on these stinky motherfucking resistance gremlins. I am Heath Armstrong. This is Never Stop Peaking. It's depressing like a dimple on your butt. If you behave, you'll get a nickel you can spend on stuff And in time, you'll get a dime if you impress your boss So you can buy some more stuff just to numb your thoughts You've been a space-driven higgity hunk of me since birth Flying through the universe on a rock called Earth Composed of stardust with an emotional gut Why you letting conformity slam you up the butt? You're not one fucks, two fucks, red fucks, blue fucks You can play duck hunt and wait around for luck Or you can rent a big truck and drive your vision Build a palace to the moon while your schmuck friends piss their pants Get up and dance, rocket ship that booty Take a chance for your freedom, make it milk that booby Cause when the fear attacks, it tries to crack What you're thinking? Fuck no, you'll never stop peeking Sexy people Ladies, gents, boys, and girls, and everything in between. Whatever you got down there, I'm all for it. Pull it out. Let me see it. Let's elope. Let's do some things together. When I was working construction, this is a thought that I have a lot. 
and it's it's a very important thought. When I was working construction, I used to crawl through the week with my guts on the floor. I was always hopelessly wishing that the weekend would make an early arrival, and I would be holding a bottle of Jim Beam and a box of Twinkies in my hands, just waiting to party. And that Jim Beam and those Twinkies may have gone in more than one of my holes at the same time. I don't know if you can relate to that, but on some level you can. How often do you think, if only it was Friday, if only it was Friday, or I can't wait for the weekend to get here. That type of mindset, though, as normal as it is, it's pure poison. Because when you wish away your week, you wish away your time. And the first time I ever heard that was when I was at World Domination Summit in 2015. Um, And one of the speakers there had mentioned that when we wish away our weeks, it's kind of like saying, fuck, take away my life. And I thought about it. When you wish away your week, you wish away your time, right? Wishing away your time is like inviting the Grim Reaper to your private dinner. Sitting across the table from him and showing him everything you got. Your heart. Your mind. Your ass. Do you really want to wish away your family, your friends, and your one life? Do you want the reaper to come and take those things from you? Everything that you take for granted is somebody else's fairy tale. We shouldn't be afraid of death because death is the only constant reminder of how important each moment is. So we should cherish each and every single moment that we have before time makes us cherish what we had. Make every day a motherfucking Saturday, yo. No more Mondays. If you ever catch yourself in the wish trap, use some affirmations. That's what the Sweet Ass Domination Deck is for. That's why we do this podcast. Affirmations are real. And one of the affirmations that I use before going to sleep that I say out loud several times is, I am happy for this awesome moment because this moment is my awesome life. And as woo-woo as that sounds, it's fucking true. Everything around us is brilliant. Everything around us is bright. What are we doing with our time? We must stop wishing it away. We must start paying attention to it and seeing what we can do in every moment, what kind of action we can take to improve ourselves, to improve everybody around us, to improve every situation involved between us and everyone around us, and to improve the rest of the world to educate and inform, to help spread the positive energy, to take down the resistance gremlins, the fear gremlins, the inconfident gremlins that are fucking everybody's head up these days, the media gremlins, the poison gremlins, all of this shit that is parading around the world, pulling its dick out and flopping it all over everybody's face and everyone's like, oh yeah, Jerry Springer, fuck yeah, reality TV, did you watch CNN and Fox fucking news? Did you see Trump piece of shit ass? Did you see what he did? All of that stuff, every bit of it is a distraction from what we should be doing, from the love that we should be having. Let's work together on this. One of the things that I am very adamant about is is this idea of how we spend our time. I'm a mind strength junkie. All I want to do is figure out ways that I can get myself through tough times and focus on what actually matters. Is it really that bad? Am I really suffering? How do I suffer well? And how do I suffer well to the point to where I can make something good out of this moment and build on that? 
whenever I run into specific people that are also doing that type of thing, I get really inspired. And one of these people, Valerie Groth, the founder of the Ryan Banks Academy, I ran into a few years ago. She was an interview on my old show, The Artsy Now Show, and is one of the most inspirational, amazing balls of love and energy I've ever met. I got to see her down in Los Angeles recently when she did an event for her charity with Jeff Garland and Tenacious D and Sarah Silverman, and it was amazing. There was only like 100 people there. It was a blast. And seeing her get to that point, it lights me up because I remember when she just got started and she just got this first little scholarship to fund her initial idea. And she's been working on this for a long time, almost a decade now from idea to visualizing and manifesting. And her academy finally opened its doors a couple weeks ago. You may see on the Sweet Ass Domination deck or all the Rage Create products that we sell on RageCreate.com that we do 10% of the net proceeds to the Ryan Banks Academy. Well, the Ryan Banks Academy is Valerie's Academy. She worked as a social worker in inner city Chicago. She was in the midst of the suffering of these children and the, the fact that they had nobody to go to. They had nowhere to learn safely. They had bullets flying past their heads as they're walking home. And the reality was these kids were dying. They were getting shot while they were playing outside in the streets. Her own kids that she was that she was mentoring as a social worker were being killed. And Ryan Banks was one of them. And Ryan created this amazing vision board when he was in her program. And it's in her book. Her book's called The Power of the Possible. It's on Amazon. It'll be linked in the show notes as well. But if you search Amazon for The Power of Possible, Valerie's story is incredible. And I suggest you get that and check it out um, to support her, but also to inspire yourself to be bigger because her story is not easy. It was an impossible thing that she dreamed of and she's making it happen every single day. So I'm really excited to have her on this interview. Um, if you want the show notes for this, it's going to be at heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. This is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever you're listening from. If you don't mind helping out, I would love for you to leave a review. If you do, every review that we get is going to help send $2 more to the Help International Foundation that I work with in Uganda. Um, And you have no idea how far just $2 go. If anybody's interested in sponsoring a kid out there, it's it's really – hold on. The interview is starting, and it's – in my earphones, I gotta pause this. Okay, sorry about that. Anyways, uh, two dollars goes a long way. If you're interested in sponsoring a kid, there, hit me up at heath at fistpumps.com. I can send you the website where it shows you everything about these kids. This isn't a place that is a crock of shit. This is a place that I've been. I've been with the kids. I've been at the orphanage. Uh, I I know exactly what it's like. And $30 a month is unbelievable for how far it goes. Now, that being said, we have an um, unbelievable problem in our own country with being able to protect our own children. And it gets overlooked a lot because of these international foundations. There's nothing wrong with which side that you choose to support. um, But the Ryan Banks Academy is really, really, really looking for support as well. And you can go to ryanbanksacademy.org. And Valerie puts her information out later in the show to get in contact with her directly if you want to help there. They're doing a $9 campaign right now. All you have to do is submit $9. Um, It's nothing. And it goes a long way to help these kids 
and their tuition and their upbringing and their future and their dreams because they are the future generation and we need to help them. We need to be good role models for them. So heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast for the show notes. If you want to enter a giveaway for this week's episode, we do a giveaway every week. It's heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. You get entered into this one and every single week after this. And we give away domination decks. We give away sweet ass journals and all sorts of cool stuff. So I'm going to get right into the show. I'm going to get right in. If anybody wants to leave a message for the show, I love it when those come through. I've played a few of them on the show. Uh, it's heatharmstrong.com forward slash voice, and you can do that. Or you just go, I think, straight up to heatharmstrong.com on the sidebar, and maybe you can do it as well. But that website's a little janky right now. I'm trying to fix it. I apologize for the slowness. Love every single person that's here listening, and I'm going to get right into this. This was a video call with with many other people on it, so the quality may be a little up and down. You can always watch this video by getting on YouTube and searching for Valerie Groth, Heath Armstrong. It should pop up, Gremlin Smashers Rage Create. It's also on Facebook, um, and if you're a member of the Gremlin Smashers group on Facebook, then it'll be posted in there as well for you to watch if you prefer to do that. And Valerie is a very energetic, amazing person. (laughs) And I just love collaborating with her, sharing things with her. And I hope that everybody listening can go out there and make a little bit of a difference yourself. So I'll get right into this episode now. All right, let's do it. Come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Come on, come on, everybody, let me hear that stickity, stickity, rickety, dickity beat. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I haven't seen Valerie since Los Angeles, which was amazing because she somehow finagled a nice little event with Jeff Garland, who's probably my favorite comedian and Tenacious D, Mm -hmm. whose new album, I guess, is just came out that they talked about there. They played a couple new songs from it. And Sarah Silverman was there, which is really awesome. I got heckled the whole time by Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I got, I got heckled very badly. And you have the same birthday as him? Yeah, something? that was weird. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, he's, he's always been my favorite comedian too, so it's funny to have him be a part of our world now. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, it, it is, it's surreal that the way that you came about finding him, first of all, mm-hmm. which we can talk about a little bit later, but just the progress that you've made in watching you since I first met you and... 2000, you were at WDS 2014 and 15, right? 
Uh, 2014 was the first time that I attended, and that right. was where there was Michael a moment Hyatt on there, stage, right? Michael Hyatt, yeah. that started everything for me. And then I was back on stage at 2015, getting an award. Right, which, which was, I had also applied for that scholarship that you won. So I was like, I didn't know oh, that. Oh man. Um, I didn't even make like the first cut, the, the second cut or whatever. But you. I want you to talk a little bit about the Michael Hyatt thing mm -hmm. first, because I think that's a really interesting point and it opens, Sachi, stop. It opens up um, a little bit of a catalyst as to why you decided to make a shift from being a social worker to what you're mm -hmm. doing now with the Ryan Banks Academy. So for everybody here, Valerie is the founder of the Ryan Banks Academy, which finally you opened some doors a couple weeks yeah. ago, which is a huge milestone. You've been working on this for like a decade. Um, <laughs> It's it's been a long time coming, and you've also been really successful with uh, inspirational coaching, life coaching, and things like that. But but it all started with you working in inner city schools in Chicago as a social worker, being in depth with these children who are out there on the streets with nowhere to have safety, protection, education, all of these things that that all these children should have the right to have. And you ended up at World Domination Summit in 2014. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I can dive in later to kind of where the idea came from for the boarding school. Um, long story short, I had this idea, wanted to build a boarding school, and it was just an idea for a very long time, um, a good 70 years where I thought, this is crazy. How would I do it? Where would I start? This is impossible. I don't have the qualifications to do this. So I had the dream for a very long time. And just thought, you know, one day when I'm retired, this will be what I take on when I'm 50, 60, have all this money and time sitting around. I'll, I'll do it later. I just kind of kept pushing it off. And I was at World Domination Summit in 2014 in Portland, and Michael Hyatt took the stage. So Michael is an entrepreneur, author, um, speaker, has done a lot of cool stuff. And he told a story beginning his speech about he talked to an actuary before the event and the actuary told him that out of the audience of around a thousand people in the audience um, according to the odds one of us would die in 30 days and you know it's funny because I, i've talked to other people who were in the audience at that same event and they don't remember michael hyatt they don't recall what he said but for me that was just world changing and for whatever reason it was like this brick wall moment for me and I, I just had this realization of, you know, we know life is short, yada, yada. But I thought, I can't wait until I'm retired. This is too big of a vision. Um, by then, it had, it had been a dream for many, many years. And I thought, I have to go and just figure this out. It's too important. Um, and something that happened in that moment that I think shifted everything for me was not even what he was saying. But I had this realization that because it was so big, no one knew what to do. So I had been stuck by the how, like not knowing what to do or what to do next or what that plan would be. And that kept me stuck not knowing the how of things. And I had this realization that there's nobody that, that had the how figured out. So Oprah didn't know, the mayor didn't know, the president wouldn't know. And there was something about the magnitude of this project that made it seem kind of more doable, if that makes any sense. So because it was so big and so crazy and impossible and audacious, I thought, you know what? If no one can do it, then I'll, you know, I'm no less off than anyone else and even the playing field. And I thought, I'm just going to figure it out. So that was the moment uh, that changed my entire life. And I still get tears thinking about it. Like I get goosebumps because 
Man, I'll never forget where I was sitting. Where were you sitting? Did, now, did that moment stand out to you at all, or was it just? I wasn't in my there crazy in 2014. Event? I was there in 2015. Oh, okay. But okay. I, I I I remember reading that specifically in your book, which Valerie, mm. her whole story is in the Power of Possible. It's on yeah. Amazon. It's amazing. If you guys want to check it out, totally uh, grab it. You can leave her a review too because it totally helps. And look, usually I would get into deep, authentic topics that don't necessarily relate to the person's story. Valerie, but every once in a while, I think there's pure magic in the story and in the journey and, and they continue us up and down in the mountain and in the struggle to do something at that magnitude that you were talking about and really just attacking what others would label impossible. This is you. Uh, this is, this is you, this is your story. This is your drive and it's everything. And it's something that I want to explore. And something that's very important is that many of us in the Western world, uh, we seem to look into areas where we can help and naturally we're drawn out of the country, right? We're drawn to South America, the Middle East, uh, Africa. And because we know that it's put right in front of us on the internet everywhere that these kids are starving, they're under pressure to survive. But most, what most of us don't see or what we're not aware of is that it's actually happening right here in our own country too. And we have the same problem. Children who spend every moment of their day in survival mode. And you've seen it, you've worked with it, you've been in the middle of it, and that's why you decided to take action on it. Uh, gun violence and living without food and with little shelter and no real guidance that helps them progress uh, to become a better person or to have any type of hope. And because of the lack of awareness around this subject, uh, it makes it extremely difficult for you to get support and for you to get through to people to help you build this up. So. I think it's really important to point that out because you faced this battle and you kept swinging and you opened the academy finally. Which <laughs> it's, I can't even put into words how amazing that must feel for you, but how magical it is to watch and how inspiring it has been to me. Um, but Valerie, like, this is a, a loaded question, but you can go with whatever direction you want. Who, who is Ryan uh -huh. Niazzi, Niazzi Banks? Uh, his given name is Niazi. He was Niazi. given by Ryan. Yeah. Who is yeah. Ryan Banks and who were you before Ryan mm -hmm. Banks and who are you now after? Mm. Uh, gosh, yeah. So as, as Heath kind of mentioned, I worked as a school social worker on the south side of Chicago for a long time. And I guess one way of explaining it is my job was to work with kids who had challenges with like social skills and, you know, fighting and typical teenage issues um, and basically my job ended up being none of that. My job ended up being crisis counselor, grief counselor and I had a caseload of kids I was supposed to see for those first issues and I ended up just helping kids who witnessed a homicide the night before in the living room and went to school the next day or a kid who was suicidal um, because of how bad things were. And the suicidal thing was a, a big part of my job. I, I was constantly um, hospitalizing kids for being suicidal and often they wanted to be in the psych ward because it was so much more safe and loving and supportive than being at home uh, and that was a real eye-opening experience for me that these kids would rather um, you know slit the wrist than uh, to be at home and I realized that it wasn't the anomaly it wasn't five kids in a school of a thousand it was the majority of my students who were living in trauma um, and not just trauma exposed uh, one time, but these were kids who were chronically trauma exposed. So 
when you think about PTSD, someone who goes to war, witness violence, um, it's, it's PTSD because it's post-trauma. These are kids who are, it's chronic, it's everyday, it's concurrent, it never ends. Um, and, you know, the kids who don't have the resources to deal with that. So I saw that so many of my kids were, were going through those challenges. And I was one social worker to over a thousand kids between a few schools. So it was impossible to service those kids. Um, and Ryan was one of the students on my caseload, and basically he was on there because he had ADHD, he was a fidgety kid, um, just like all of us entrepreneurs have our own like entrepreneur ADHD, we can all like, kind of understand. He just, he was a busy kid with a lot of ideas and just had a hard time focusing in school. So he was on my caseload for that reason. Uh, he had a tough life too and had a lot of reasons to be angry, but he was always a happy kid, like always bounding into my office, kind of like uh, Kramer, like, you know, like, ah, like opening the door, just like a ball of energy. Um, and so he was a really great kid who I didn't get to work with as often as I wanted because I was often pulled to so many crises. Um, but he was someone that I worked closely with for many years. And unfortunately, Ryan was shot and killed in May of 2012. He was 12 years old. And I feel like I have to explain because when you think of a 12 year old people's minds go to well he was killed on the south side was he gang involved was he doing the wrong thing um no he wasn't he was not like the 12 year old with a mustache he was a skinny little bird like tiny little 12 year old who was playing with his younger brother um on the front steps of his house um just in the wrong place at the wrong time um and i've lost other kids since then and i could tell you all the stories about uh you know those kids but Ryan was one of the ones where it really hit me, and I had the idea for RBA before Ryan was killed, and that was just one of the moments where I realized, okay, I, in that moment, I still wasn't able to do it yet. Uh, this was still pre-Michael Hyatt, but in that moment, I thought, all right, like, I'm going to do it, and kind of started to plot in my head, so I knew I was going to quit my job. Um, but it was always kind of under the guise of doing my coaching, which I, I did love and still do and still love, but it was always kind of like, I'm going to transition from my job now, kind of have this excuse to leave, and eventually I need to figure out how to build a school in Ryan's honor. Um, so that was kind of how it started. So it, I had the idea before Ryan, but he was very much kind of the catalyst. And his, his vision board is mm -hmm. amazing. The Power of Possible, the mm -hmm. title of the book came right off of his vision board, which you have a picture of in your book. Yeah. Um, and when, when that hit, when you get to that part of the book and you actually see that, I was like, I teared up. I remember sitting, yeah. I remember exactly where I was sitting, looking at that, thinking like, wow, had no idea. I actually drew a heart around it. Huh. Oh. Um, his, he was brilliant. Like his, his vision board is, he was very driven, very brilliant. And that makes everything hmm. that much harder. But at the same time, um, it shows the potential of these kids that are being suppressed and the beauty of what you're doing. What, what do you think, what do you think you noticed most about the kids you started counseling and how to get them to open up to you authentically as this, this strange lady who really came mm. from a background that was nothing like them? Ah, good question. I know it's tough. I mean, I, yeah, I, it's hard because I think what comes to mind is just really simple. I think I just, 
it took time. They need to know that I cared. It wasn't anything tactically that I did. Um, I was trained to be a therapist, and so I kind of had those skills down. Um, and you had a, you know, uh, to be a counselor, to be an active listener. But I think it, it, it took them having to learn that I was someone who really cared and who loved them and who uh, they could trust in. And it did take some time because these are kids who often don't have stable adults in their in their in their lives. Um, parents come and go, teachers come and go. Um, the tenure for a teacher on the inner city is a couple of years. I was there for seven years, um, I guess eight years, and that's actually considered a lifetime. Like no one stays that long pretty much um, because it just, it's tough and it, the turnaround is so hard for, for teachers down there. So these are kids who are not used to having a stable adult in the woods. And so there's a little bit of like testing. Are you really here because you want to be here, not because it's paycheck for you. Um, so I think it's just showing that you're there for the right reasons. How did you, how did you pull through the, the attachment of them? I remember you, you, you created this little room, right? You made this kind of safe haven where they could come talk to you and it. And then it became like this position of you trying to make them feel safe in there so that they would finally open up to you. How did you get through? I mean, personally, I'm just curious, like, the toll that it must have taken on you seeing what they were going through. Most people probably drop out because that's too much to handle. How did you handle all of that um, and keep being a staple for them to, to come and, and really progress this process? Because I, I imagine that the fall off is pretty drastic cliff for most people. Um, I think, I mean, there are things that I think I did to try to help with that because I think part of the challenge when you go into that work, um, like when you're someone who I know Heath, you're definitely an empath, right? Yes. Um, and when you're someone like that, it makes you really good at your job and really good at helping people, but it makes it hard on you personally um, because it's harder to separate and not put up a wall and to disconnect from other people's uh, challenges. And there's a very real um, scientific field, which is like vicarious trauma, secondary uh, compassion fatigue. Um, so when you're in that helping profession, you're liable to, you know, experience those own challenging emotions yourself, just dealing with it, um, being around it all day and kind of having your energy impacted by that. And again, when you're kind of like a person who thrives in energy, like that becomes a part of who you are. Um, and then just the, the logistical, like knowing that there are so many kids going through challenges would make it hard. I remember being on vacation with my ex-husband uh, my first year, we were in Puerto Rico on spring break and I just couldn't relax and enjoy myself because I kept thinking like, how can I be in Puerto Rico right now on a beach when there are these kids at home and they're not even gonna eat lunch today? Um, and it, it's hard, it's hard. And I don't know how you really get over that. Um, so I, I, one thing I wrote in the book is I have this assumption and this is kind of cynical, and I'm sure there are exceptions to this, and I, I can think of a couple, but overall, I think that people go into this work because they have the right heart for it and the passion, and they either continue to have that passion, and it kind of burns them out personally, and it just kind of impacts their health and their mental health and their relationships, um, or they kind of realize they have to disconnect to continue with this job, and they become lackadaisical and kind of um, just emotionally disconnected so they can keep doing it long term, but they don't have the heart for it. And I'd love to think that you can do both and to stay um, in that role long term and still have the passion for it. But I think it's really, really, really hard. 
Um, so truthfully, my answer to that is I had to leave. And that was because I had this vision of I wanted to create a school, but had I not had that, I think I would have eventually had to leave because it would have been, it, it's just really hard, I think, um, for me personally to feel like I'm in an environment where I'm not really making a difference. And that was what was so hard is, you know, you go into that world of social work because you want to make a difference and change the world in some small way. And I felt like I was never doing enough. So I saw five kids. I should have seen 10 kids. You see 25 kids. Well, you should have seen 50. And it, that just drained on me, which is partially just my own issues right around like, how do you measure success? Uh, how do you feel like you're making an impact? But I think that was hard. And I eventually had to get out. Um, and some people are really good at it and can stick it out. But um, I don't know. It's a very real thing, I think, how, how helpers often burn themselves out. I've experienced similar things with working in, in Africa and just coming back and seeing the way that we can live in the Western world and thinking about that and being like, how can I spend, you know, $8 on this beer when that could go here? And, and it was really, it is, an, it is a struggle internally, but for me to get through it, it's more of like, I have to be able to take care of and I'm not talking about drink more beer, but have to be able to take <laughs> care of myself so that I can help more people on a larger scale. And so I think keeping yourself sane in the way that you would normally react in society is important. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I just, I, I look at your story and I, and I see the, the magical stuff that you did and how you were able to take these kids outside of what they've only known, right? These small little areas that they've only seen and take them out of the city and out and explore. And, and it only takes that one time for them to see a college campus or to, um, go to a specific library before they think, oh my gosh, now this is possible for me. I could do this. How did, how did it all start to, to change for you when you noticed their enthusiasm behind those types of trips that you were taking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, from reading the book, my favorite day of all I wrote about, and it was when we took the kids to go visit my dad's school. He runs a vocational school um, and also to visit a college. Uh, out of state and it was just so freaking fun these kids were like you know it was Christmas morning um, getting to explore a high school where they do cool innovative things and going to college um, and one thing that broke my heart about it was the high school is in Indiana and we're in Chicago and Illinois and so my dad's school they have more funding in Indiana and they're doing a lot of cool things um, and so my students were on the bus home like oh my gosh I can't wait to go to that school next year I'm so excited and I had to be like oh, I'm, I'm so sorry like you can't go to that school you live in Chicago and we don't have a school like that here for you um, which just breaks my heart you know, to see kids who are finally excited and engaged um, and wanting to learn for often the first time in their lives. And to say, because of where you were born, you don't get to have an option like that. Yeah. Um, and thinking about the college piece, so one analogy that, um, I don't know if this resonates or not, but you know, when I was little, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and that was like the thing for a long time. I didn't know what it was exactly, but I wanted to create, I wanted to invent things. I wanted to 
kind of have the freedom within my career. And I didn't know any entrepreneurs. And so I didn't do that. I just simply didn't do it. Um, even though it, that was kind of my, my passion for a long time as a kid through high school when I discovered more about what it actually meant. And it wasn't until I was an adult, like later in adulthood, where I found resources and mentors who had done that. And I kind of realized, okay, this is how I do it and took that leap. Um, but my parents didn't have any friends who were entrepreneurs. So there were like no entrepreneurs in my friend circle and my community that I knew of. And I had everything else going for me. I was a good kid in high school. I got good grades. Um, my parents were highly educated, super motivated in terms of like me going to college. Um, all my friends' parents went to college. All my friends were going to college. And so that's what I did because that's all I knew. And so you know, when you think about kids who don't have an example of someone going to college, it's easy as an outsider to say, well, why can't you just figure it out? But I think that's a great example to me. Of, I, I was someone who had a lot of resources and didn't really like want for anything. I wasn't missing anything pertinent in my life. I just didn't have that example and that role model. And so I just couldn't do it. Um, and so I think exposure is so key. Um, you know, there's a phrase, uh, you can't be what you can't see. And it's as simple as that. So just the mere fact of showing kids, here's what a college campus looks like. Here are people who go to college, um, taking them downtown to go to, you know, job shadowing and to see things uh, they never, never otherwise would have been able to see, I think is huge. So that opportunity piece is where we're often missing out. When you do fundraising, do you find it difficult um because it's a, it's a, it's a nonprofit within the United States? Um, I, I don't know how to answer that because I, <laughs> I've definitely thought about it. And in my head, I make that excuse, right? Like, oh man, if you're raising for, um, for example, you know, I, I'm just being honest, like I'm, I'm jealous uh, when I hear of like the schools that you built in other countries because you can build a school for 10 grand. And I think, oh, oh my God, like 10 grand is like- Pencils of promise. And things yeah, and it costs so much to build a school here. It's just unbelievable. Um, right. Like, oh man, <laughs> I could do a lot uh, if I could build a school for $10,000 with the money that we've raised. Um, so from that angle, I see that and I just kind of have like envy, like I wish it was that easy here. Um, but I do, I- to the easy path, we wouldn't have people like you who are tackling the big mountain here that needs to be done, you know? It's all on scale. Yeah. There's plenty of money out there if we can pinpoint where it's at and mm -hmm. convince the people yeah, and I think, you know, Pencils of Promise is a great example because they have been able to do something global, um, at, or at least national, and I think because you're looking outward and outside of, of the states, you can get people involved from Portland, from Miami, from the Midwest. Um, I thought it would be harder because we're doing something hyper-local. I thought we would only be targeting people in Chicago, um, but Heath, you're a prime example of the fact that I think this resonates with people outside of Chicago. And, and I don't know why that is for everybody. Um, I think part of it is, unfortunately, people know Chicago and they know the challenges and like we're known for, um, you know, the issues we have here with uh, poverty and violence and just being so segregated. Um, part of it, I think, has been just kind of this crazy story of just what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, but we have supporters as far away as Singapore, which kind of surprised me. So I think, um, 
yeah, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be great to be doing something where we could kind of be as broad as Pencils of Promise, but I think considering we're so hyper-local, um, it's been really cool seeing the support across the world. So I guess yes and no is the answer. It's, yeah, it's pinpointing and finding methods to get in touch with these people. I mean, I think it's brilliant the way that, brilliant, it's, it's kind of a sign from the universe the way even Jeff Garland came through because he found your <laughs> Instagram, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you can tell that story if you want. Well, yeah, so like you, uh, Jeff was always my favorite comedian. I mean, I just think he's hilarious. Um, for those who don't know Jeff's name, you probably do know him. You just haven't heard the name, but he's on Kirker Enthusiasm, um, The Goldbergs, two really great shows. And we connected on social media about a year and a half ago, and he kind of randomly was following us for a while, unbeknownst to me, and um, called me out of the blue and said, you know what, I'm from Chicago, I've been watching the violence, and I felt so helpless, and I didn't know what to do. And then I found Ryan Banks Academy, and this is exactly what I've been looking for. Um, which was really cool. And yeah, it is one of those moments. And we've had so many amazing supporters uh, from across the country. But yeah, it is, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. Um, it definitely feels very serendipitous. And we still have a long way to go. And there are a lot of people we still haven't met. Oprah, I'm talking to you. Uh, Obama's, I'm talking to you. But we, we've we've had a really good uh, run of getting to people that we we think are important to the mission. Um, Arnie Duncan, the former Secretary of Education that used to work for Obama in, the, in his cabinet, was one of my role models for a long time because he wanted to build boarding schools in Chicago. And for a few years, um, or it took a few years to get there, but we eventually got to him. Um, he's given us an endorsement. He's a supporter. So one thing that I have learned throughout this is that anyone is reachable. Um, I think it helps when you're doing something, I think, that people know is needed. I don't know if I would have gotten to Jeff or Arnie if I was, like, selling shoes. Um, but I think when you're doing something that you are just so incredibly passionate about and you have put in the time and the persistence and when you also um, have made this vision something, I think there's something to the fact that when it's also, like, so big that it feels impossible, I've always felt that that was kind of the winning combination of – the whole, you know, quote from the alchemist of like, when the world conspires to help you. I think it's that twofold piece of like the crazy passion persistence, like I, I will die before giving up on this um, and do whatever it takes combined with like, this is not just a dream. This is like a fucking crazy, hairy, audacious dream. There's something about those two, two parts that I think makes magic happen in some way the beautiful law of attraction and putting your intention out into the world, it really can come back around. I think it's going to continue to grow for you. I mean, there's going to be random connections yeah. that come through. Obviously people like Jeff Garland trickling in help drastically, but it only takes one of those really, really big ones to change everything. And I think you're getting mm -hmm. very close. I really feel it. I hope so. I think so too. <laughs> so thank you for your support. I want to ask you a little bit about your transition when you, you had this gigantic idea and I think mm -hmm. for anybody out there who is looking to do something like creating a nonprofit, it can always feel very heavy and impossible. It's like, where do you start? How do you do it? And I know from talking to you and just in my own experience that it comes down to taking just a few small steps every day. But you, know, you worked as a social worker. You didn't just quit your job and say, I'm doing Ryan Banks full time. You decided to bring in the coaching aspect and try to transition to that maybe over a year or two. 
And then when you were getting a little bit of income from that, you were able to pull back from the social work and then you were able to start mm-hmm. kind of working on the idea of Ryan Banks as, as kind of a, a staircase. For somebody that's doing or has an idea to start a nonprofit, do you have any advice on how to make that transition? Hmm. That's a hard question. Um, I think it, it definitely depends on the situation too. So it's hard to give a blanket overall yeah. statement. Um, I do think when possible, it, it is helpful to have the resources to start um, and to have a runway. And I think it's not realistic to ask anyone to have their own personal runway of like having savings for four years built up. Um, I think, I don't know what I would have done differently, um, but it, it, it took us four years to get to where we are today to have the first version of the school open. Had I gotten a bigger grant when I first started that would have allowed us to pay me more money and hire consultants and um, fly me to visit schools, um, we probably could have done that in three years or maybe even two years. Um, the, the power of having resources can't be underestimated, um, which might kind of fly in the face of the fact that I'm, you know, a nonprofit uh, founder, which has this connotation of, you know, bootstrapping and, um, and, and low overhead, but it takes a lot of money to, to do this. Um, it takes more money because what we're doing is so big. Um, if you're, you know, building an after school arts program, we don't, you're not in that position, I guess. But I think for us, it was very, it was a very expensive proposition, and it did take a lot of of things that cost money. We had to travel across the country and visit schools, and um, you know, hire experts and do a lot of due diligence um, that cost time and money. Um, so I think as soon as you can kind of get some seed funding, that's really important. That's really important, and I wish I would have known the importance of that. How do you go about also, doing that? And that's where I think it's more <laughs> industry specific, right? Um, you know, had I known I was going to do this, I would have spent the first year prior, like applying for grants, um, trying to find a, a single philanthropist that would have wanted to just underwrite the first year um, yeah. and really kind of diving in. Um, and also, I don't know if this is quite in the same vein of like quitting your job, but building a team around you as soon as possible is so important. And I can talk about that all, all day long. Um, but that's Let's talk everything. About that. Let's talk a little bit. About yeah. That. Well, what are you any questions or should I, I'll just keep talking. Um, go ahead about, about well, that. I, I just, I know the, ba- the power of not just building a team, but the networking and, and support from family and friends. I mean, how, do, were there people that, we're like, what are you doing? Like you have no this is crazy. Like you went through that. I don't know. Your family seems like they were very supportive. Um, how do you, how do you find the people? How do you find your tribe that's willing to, to build around you? And I, I imagine that it's really hard to go to people and be like, look, I have no, I can barely pay you right now. Are mm-hmm. you willing to work with me? Um, what does this mean to you? Is it only people <laughs> that are like in the Chicago area that are involved with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, well, when I think about the importance of building a team, um, when I very first got started, so, and when I say very first, like with the full time, um, it was four years ago this month that I put the word out on Facebook and a guy who actually saw me at WDS, but I didn't meet at WDS. I'm sorry. 
did not see me that was next year, um, her, had heard of me and the work through WDS, um, approached me who lives in Chicago, and he said, I want to be on your board. Ooh. And I said, what's a board? <laughs> Do I need a board? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's how things work. So that was kind of my first clue that I had to build a board and to learn what that was. Um, so I brought him on, on board and he's still a part of the team. He's been fantastic. So, uh, shout out to Ryan Lazarus, um, Big Ryan! that I went through WDS, uh, and other people kind of found us through the WDS posting as well. Um, I started to post in some Chicago groups and a lot of people came to our aid and that I remember after I had that posting, it was overwhelming because the support was just like flooding in. And so one, it was really cool to see how many people wanted to be part of this. And if that hadn't happened, I would have quit right then and there. But there was something about just the influx of support that showed me this is something important and I should be putting in the time uh, to make it real. Uh, that was kind of like me testing the waters, I think. And through those postings, a lot of people came out and said, I want to help you. I want to volunteer. And I didn't know what I was doing. And so I said, sure, like I need a ton of people. This is a big project. I had no freaking clue what to do. So I said, the more the merrier. Um, I didn't trust myself to be a founder and that, at that time. And so I brought on two uh, kind of former colleagues who were also social workers and said, hey, do you want to be co-founders? And they said, sure. Wow. <laughs> and so um, it was, I don't know how long that was the, the, like, the, the layout um, where there was three of us as co-founder, um, but I quickly realized like they weren't really co-founders. They just kind of wanted to be part of it. Um, so I decided, okay, I guess I'll just, it'll be me again. Um, and I still hadn't learned my lesson and I still thought this was like a month into it. I thought I can't do it on my own. I need someone else. And so I found someone else, um, that I had never met through some Facebook group, um, friend of a friend who said, sure, I'll help you out. And I, I realized now I jumped into that way too quickly. First of all, I mean, I, I literally like there was no, there was no planning or preparation or here's how we're going to like structure tasks and responsibilities. It was just me acting out of fear. 100%. I didn't trust myself um, and didn't trust myself that I could do it on my own. So trying to fill in the gap. And I think part of it was, I think, because this is a big, massive project, I thought I needed credibility. And there still is that fear, I think, within me because it's so massive. Like if it was just me um, going out to recruit parents, they'd, they'd laugh. Like one person can't go to school. That's just... Um, just common sense. And so wanting to build a team with as many people as possible was my big focus at the beginning. And what I know now is it, I, it was me all along. And so I very quickly, you know, realized the other person wasn't a good fit either. Um, and didn't know if I could do it, but figured I had to try. And looking back, I would have been much more discerning about who I brought on as a co-founder, as a volunteer, as a board member. And I realized I'd rather have two people who are fantastic and really invested than 25 who really aren't. Yeah, I feel you on that. You know, one of my favorite Van Gogh quotes is, I'm always doing what I cannot do yet in order to learn how to do it. I love it. Yeah, that is the story of my life right <laughs> last four years yeah um even even today you know how to get to the next step i don't know what i don't know or what i should be learning but somehow you take that next step and you get there you figure it out we had a comment terrifying but fun 
<laughs> terrifying yeah but you get the, you get the answers from the clouds cool. yeah we had a comment about <laughs> it's important for us to not think of nonprofits as doing as much with as little as they can because it does cost mm -hmm. a lot of money yeah and on that note there's a fantastic ted talk by dan palata if you ever want to link that anywhere um it's really really can you good grab that lindsay put it in the chat i think there's just one by him if there's more than one let me know um this is ryan's vision board yeah anybody can see that i mean that's you know it's like about 10 grades above mine i know <laughs> It's like an adult vision board. Um, all the other kids had like supermodels and cars and stuff like that. Um, well, I know so, a guy, Paul Lamb, he likes to put supermodels on his. <laughs> yeah. Bodybuilders. Cars, um, protein powder. Um, no, we love Paul. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, when I think of Ryan's vision board, what I always think about is he like he didn't even get to finish it like his name on there i had to cut off of cut his name off of something else because he didn't even get to write his damn name on it it just breaks my heart yeah room 314. um and people who couldn't see the the vision board it, it just got a lot of powerful phrases on it like the world's greatest starts with a single step the power of the possible uh out of this world <laughs> yeah, that's a very key thing to say. <laughs> clean up his act. World's greatest starts with a single step. Genius. Yeah. 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 You can see clearly now. Oh, I know that one makes me cry. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And I think he was a Boardwalk Empire fan. <laughs> Apparently. Maybe. Okay, so we're getting, we're about 1045 right now. If anybody has any questions, um, if you don't have access to your mic, you can put them in the chat. If you want to come on and unmute yourself and ask a question, totally. I think we have a few in here who work with nonprofits as well, which is pretty cool. cool. Um, so I'll open that up. And in the meantime, I just, I, I'm adamant about I'm, I'm a big believer in what you're doing. Obviously I don't, I, I love you as a person and what, since the first time we talked with the Artsy Now podcast and just watching your progress, it's very easy. And, I, and I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people doing amazing things over the years and very seldom do I keep in contact on a friend to friend basis and end up meeting in person and just like really being into exactly what you're doing. And I just, I'm very proud of you, Valerie, <laughs> like very proud. You have no idea how much it inspires me, myself, to do bigger things. Um, you have a question? Hello? Hey, can yeah. you hear me? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I came on late and maybe you said this, but I heard you say that you had the idea before um, Brian Banks, and I was more so wondering about when it was clear to you what that idea was and what mm -hmm. happened in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I, I've had the idea for a boarding school. And just to clarify, so we did open a couple weeks ago, but we opened as a day school. So we don't have a boarding school yet. That's going to be uh, hopefully soon, just depending on our financial um, situation. So we, we've done phase one. We haven't gotten to phase two yet. So the idea for a boarding school happened kind of from day one working in the school, so almost 11 years ago. Um, and that was something I thought about day in and day out until Ryan died and then Ryan died and I realized, okay, enough is enough. 
Um, and then it was really that conference that summer where, where I realized um, think this has to happen. But I think what, 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 what shifted at that conference was the belief that I could do it. Um, we, when I was hiring our staff to work at the school, you know, a lot of them, um, I guess I'm sure all of them, this is a new thing to build a school, right? Like it is for me and they're all really excited. Um, and for, for all of them, like this is their dream job to be uh, working at RBA and to be building something from scratch. But I've had some, some conversations with them around, you know, you, you need to know there are going to be days when you don't, you don't trust yourself. Um, you don't believe you are the person to do this and to lead this charge. And I said, you need to understand that it took me, you know, many years to get to that point. So it's been 11 years now. The first seven years, I, I, had, I didn't think I could do it. And I started actually working on it four years ago, which says to you, uh, or I should say that I had some kind of belief that it was possible. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, there are still the occasional day um, where I think, oh my God, am, can I do this? Can I pull this off? Um, and I, I had those conversations with my staff because I think so often whenever we have that belief or that, that thought um, that says, I can't do it, we think that that's a red flag. And we think simply because there's a thought, we have to put credibility and credence to that. Um, and what I was trying to kind of impress upon them is it, you know, I, I had seven to 10 years of not believing I could do it. And I finally now know that I can do it. Like, it's still really hard. And there are still days when I feel challenged. Um, but that was the difference is I, I didn't believe in myself enough at the beginning to do it. It just seemed way too big and too audacious. And thinking about the imposter syndrome piece, to tell a side story, um, I saw Madeline Albright speak a few years ago, um, and it was really cool for a lot of reasons, but she said that she still has imposter syndrome. So she has been in meetings with often all male heads of states from across the world, and she thinks, oh my God, do I belong in this room? Like, what am I doing here? And I love that she said that. I think we can look at someone like that and think that it's discouraging, because even when you reach the top of your game, you still feel that. Or we can think, okay, I know, I know now that it's gonna happen, like I'm gonna have that voice, and it doesn't mean that I have to stop or that I need to listen to it. So I don't know if that's yeah. uh, making sense at all, but it was when I kind of learned to stop listening to that voice, I guess, in summary. Can you, with, um, I know you were doing social work before, which is probably still fulfilling, but the fulfillment that you feel now from what you're doing, what you're accomplishing, you know, 11 years down, um, how is that to you? Oh my God. Uh, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And, and honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't compare. I mean, I, I loved what I was doing with my kids. Uh, but like I mentioned, I never felt like I was doing enough. Um, and I was too hard on myself. That's part of it. But there was just so much need. And I felt like I, you know, it was just, you know, I don't know, trying to, um, trying to think of a good You're analogy. Like, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I loved working with the kids, no doubt. Um, but the fulfillment of this is just unexplainable. And I think, 
entrepreneurs know that it's a roller coaster compared to like a nine to five, like the highs are yeah. way higher, the lows are way lower. Um, and it's like that. And I think having been a, just a traditional entrepreneur compared to this, this is just like that on steroids. So um, the lows are really bad. And that day when I was supposed to do the podcast with Keith, I mean, it was it was hard. I was like on the ground, like, I don't know if I can like survive this really, really, really bad. Um, but the highs are just unexplainable. I, I, it's, it makes me emotional thinking about the fact that we actually opened last week. Um, that is a feeling. Yeah. It's wild. It's absolutely crazy. Like you did even, it. Yeah. Yeah. And even before we actually opened, there's something so cool about kind of seeing something go from vision to reality um, and building something that wasn't there. Um, and I think I didn't even know that about myself, that I kind of liked that building aspect of things. Um, and I know some people would think that's not fun at all, but for me, it is just the coolest thing to be part of. And I guess my testimony is there's been a lot of things that I have had to sacrifice to get here. Um, a lot of time and giving up a social life and financial sacrifices, big, big financial sacrifices. Um, and I, I, all of those things aside, it's 100% the most worthwhile thing. And I, I feel very, very lucky to do it. And I feel like I gush when I talk about it, um, which doesn't make for a good podcast, yeah. but, I, but I mean it. I mean, I just, <laughs> I can't express that enough. So if anyone listening, um, if you, the caller, anyone else, and you're considering doing something just fucking crazy and out there, but you just have that feeling that, you know, you, you'd feel the same way. I really encourage you to think about it and, and, and go for it. And if I can help or talk you through it, I'm happy to. It's, it's just, I can't imagine going through life and not being able to experience that, that feeling. And use a lot of fucks along the way. <laughs> Of course. I learned from the best. Rage. That's where the rage comes from. <laughs> I have another a quick question on that yeah. kind of topic. Do you see a correlation between your ability to reduce hesitation and the progress of Ryan Banks? Like when you make a decision to eliminate that, that gremlin in your head, mm -hmm. to be able to just not hesitate at all and to just go for it. Because um, I, I know that with the way that we're Put into society now we're, we're really taught to ignore our intuition we're scared of it right mm -hmm. but in reality trusting yourself is the best thing you can ever do and i know that you wouldn't be at the point that you're at if you didn't trust yourself despite everything else trying to stop you mm -hmm. from doing it so as you learn how to reduce that hesitation um how important has that been for you just, yeah i think trigger. i think there definitely is a correlation um and, you know, I was, I was sharing with a client last week about something that I hadn't told anyone else before because I'm kind of embarrassed about it. Um, the first year when I started this, it, it, it wasn't fun. <laughs> it really wasn't fun. Um, yeah, sure it wasn't. The, I still, like, I had the passion for the vision, but it was... I don't know. It was just really, really painful. Um, I guess in the way of like, if you're trying to run a marathon, like when you first start running, like it's just agony. Like there's no runner's high. It's just like, this sucks. Um, but something crazy happens when you train for a marathon and like it, 
the farther you run, like the more fun it gets, even though it gets more challenging in a lot of ways too. Um, so the first year it wasn't fun, it wasn't fulfilling, um, and I didn't trust myself. And I think the further along you get and the more little baby steps you make um, and the more you see your vision crystallizing, the more, uh, the more I started to believe in myself. And the more that I did that, that is definitely when, when good things happen. Yeah, I mean, never stop peaking, right? Keep going. Yeah. Does anybody else have a question right now? I got questions for days, but if, okay, well, I'll fill one in again. Stress management, Valerie, mm -hmm. it's, it's a big thing. And I, this is something I think about a lot is, is what do you do when you reach that vision? Like when you get to that point, like your school opens up, mm -hmm. a lot of people fall apart at that point. Cause it's like, I've been working at this forever to get to this point. What's next? How do you manage that personally? Um, do you have a, a sp specific way that you look at the situation? I mean, I know you always have the next step to work towards. Mm -hmm. Do you stop and reflect and celebrate for a while and then, and then reset for a period of time before you go forward or do you just keep raging? Mm -hmm. or do you go into hibernation for a couple months like me? Um, uh, well, I think part of it is because we do have so much more to accomplish. So we want to have, we want to triple in size next year. We want to become a residential school. And our ultimate vision is not just to have one big school, but we want to have 10, 20 schools in Chicago. Um, we would like to even consider expanding to other cities. Oh. So when you think of it that way, uh, it can be overwhelming, but there's not just like one more milestone, but like 500. Um, so after building the school, I guess I'm sorry, after opening the school two weeks ago, um, I did try to celebrate that. Um, and there wasn't any kind of like the crash of like I, I did something and I, I hit the accomplishment and, and what's next, I think, because it was still one milestone on a long, long path for us. Mm -hmm. um, what's well, a life's work? In terms of, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a lot more years uh, to get to where we, we want it to be. But I've, I've still already been thinking about what is that next path. And as much as this is my life right now, 100%. Uh, I, I, I never want to retire in this work. Like it's not going to be me like in, in 45 years. Um, there are a lot of other things I'd like to do. So I think it's helpful kind of always knowing that there are options and finding things to challenge yourself because I know at some point this won't challenge me and there'll be someone else better to come in and replace me. Um, right. So I think that kind of helps you to gain perspective too and, and not to feel like you're ever in the grind because some days it's not always that fun, that fun in terms of like it's paperwork and taxes and lawyer meetings um, and things that just aren't that exciting. But knowing that I think the time that I put into this project is intensive, but limited um, helps it to be fun. Yeah. How does it feel when you get your angel wings? <laughs> what? I'm just saying you're doing some pretty miraculous <laughs> stuff. I think, like you're I, think there. You, I think you may have some and maybe you're not. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just a, I don't know, like I said, I feel very lucky and it wouldn't be possible without a lot of people. Um, and, and you're one of them, you know, you've been a huge, huge source of support in a lot of ways. We have an amazing team. Um, and 
aside from people who are kind of like working on this on the ground, um, you know, having a couple thousand followers around the country, I don't know what I would have done without that. Um, yeah. And I think that was why it was hard at the beginning. You know, you hadn't yet built that support of people who, and now we have people who for years have been a part of this. And that feels really good to see. And I now kind of feel like we have a long way to go, but we have the foundation. And so when you hit obstacles, um, it, it was me for a long time. And I knew that wasn't sustainable. And people told me you can't do all of these things at once. Um, but it was hard because it was my passion and my, and my vision and my, my baby. And so I wanted to do all the things. Um, so that's something I think is important to uh, listeners to think about too is even when you have the thing that you're so gung-ho about you're gonna burn out if you don't have a really strong support system of people helping you with that project and also mentors outside of the project so I have a lot of people kind of like in my inner circle as part of our VA but also just uh, people that I call on and mentors and advisors who I can call and cry to call for advice call for connections call for brainstorming call for strategic help and and that is the other thing that I think is so important. Um, constantly Magic. be, yeah, surrounding yourself with other awesome people. So we had another comment and I think, I don't know if it's Lynn and the S is silent. I'm, my vocabulary skills are like third grade. <laughs> um, but she said, I'm so excited to hear about your project, Valerie. I helped start a charter school in Jackson, Mississippi in 1995 and I've been oh. co-running a nonprofit for the past 3.5 years. I can't wait to read your book and I'm looking forward to learning more about Ryan Banks. Uh, we started our nonprofit accidentally and I'm so impressed with your planning. <laughs> and then she had to That's impressive it. too. That's very cool. Yeah, so. Well, we're at the hour. Um, anybody else have any quick questions? We we had an issue with the the sign up link for some reason. I had several messages from people saying they couldn't get the link to work. I don't know why, but we'll replay this and share it. Um Gremlins. Looks like uh, Chris has a comment above. Oh yeah, I missed that. Yeah, it's um, he says um, your school wouldn't be necessary if we could reinstall the fellowship of community. Do you hope to integrate the neighboring community into slash with the Ryan Banks Academy? If so, how can you effectively connect them? Yeah. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. I'm just kidding. Of course. Yeah, that's really important. It's a great question. Um, and that could be a whole other topic of conversation. But uh, actually, our long term vision is not just to build a school, but we want every campus to be kind of co located with a bank and a grocery store and a gym um, to make it kind of a community hub. So the school is kind of a conduit to uh, impact in the community. And that's one thing that I'm really passionate about um, is Chicago is just a hyper segregated city. Um, and the more we can get people involved and integrating uh, different parts of the city and having those conversations, the better. So that's a huge part of our master plan. Good question. Yeah, community is important mm -hmm. for sure. Well, cool. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for helping again. Thank you. Her book's called The Power of the Possible from Ryan's Vision Board. Um, it's a really fast read because it's such a good story. You did a really good job of writing that. And what's next? What's next for you, Valerie? Where can people contact you? Uh, well, if anyone wants to talk about uh, any of your big dreams, I would love to hear about it um, and encourage you. So Valerie at RyanBasedAcademy.org is my email. Um, also Valerie, val at ValerieGrowth.com, but 
probably one is simpler. Um, I would love for anyone interested to learn more about Ryan Banks. So ryanbanksacademy.org. Um, if you happen to know of anyone who wants to support us, we're always looking to fundraise, uh, which is our main project. But of course, the smallest always looking for even, yes, we have a $9 campaign now. So um, get all your coworkers to chip in $9 or, or $9 a month if you feel so inclined. Um, and that's eight, eight students. We have, we're starting with eight students right now. So eight plus one for Ryan Banks. Um, anyone who wants to learn more, be a part of the team, um, help in your community in any way, love to have a conversation. But again, even just someone who, um, if there's any spark in you today, like, oh my gosh, you did something crazy and she is crazy, but I'm kind of crazy too. And I'd love to <laughs> have that conversation with you. Amazing. Cool. There's a place called space and it's got the magic. There's a place called space and it's got the balls. There's a place called space and it's got the passion. There's a place called space where we can smash the walls. There's a place called space where we'll face fuck conformity and the chatter of incompetence is slaughtered at birth. In this place called space, we'll build a factory of smells that will assemble with our minds and sell to earth. Ladies, gents, boys, and girls, you kinky little sweet-ass people, this is Todd, and I just wanted to say thank you for coming out and enjoying the show today. I've got a busy one lined up, a lot of grinder action, um, a little cutie patootie on the line, and I need to get back to my texting, but in the meantime, if you want to check out this episode in all the show notes, please go to heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast and share that with your family and your friends and all your grinder bros. And then if you want to help Valerie Groth and the Ryan Banks Academy, please do go to ryanbanksacademy.org or message Valerie at valerie at ryanbanksacademy.org. She's a very receptive, amazing, warm, glowing, beautiful woman, and she's doing magical things everywhere. And myself and you and everybody else should be on board with this. So as I get on with my day, I'm going to take a little snip of this aloe vera plant to my right. I'm going to lather that onto my body in many different ways. And when I'm done with that, I'll probably upload this episode to the interwebs and then you'll be able to hear it. So if you're listening to this now, just know that all of that kinky stuff has already happened. And I'm glad that we were able to share this connection heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway if you want to order the getaway if you want to if you want to join the giveaway um heatharmstrong.com forward slash voice if you want to leave a little message for heath or myself i do take questions as well and yeah leave us a review on itunes stitcher google play all of that stuff makes our nipples very hard and helps get the show out to more people who also enjoy having their nipples very hard. And we just need to be a very hard nipple community, and I think this is the way to do it. So thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll catch you on the next one. Ta-ta, toots!